Well, if you do have your Bibles, I invite you. We are returning to that very relevant book of 1 Kings, um, chapter 19. And uh, you can see the scripture, uh, it's verses 9 through 18. You know, I'm not one who's given to alarmism or a sky-is-falling mentality. Um, However, I am old enough. um, My children remind me that I'm over a half century now. And um, so I'm old enough to recognize that every generation has faced difficulties and difficult uh, societal issues, natural disasters, economic downturns, and other very real challenges. And at the same time, you know, what I've observed over the last few months, especially over the last few weeks, um, it really does feel like, you know, in terms of what we're experiencing, that this is a pivotal point, a a pivotal place in our um, culture, in our time, in our history. And I think many people are feeling that as well. And and so this creates some unique challenges uh, for Christians, for believers, and for the church well, you know what's ha- well when you see this, and I've kind of battled with my own spirit a little bit. It's easy to get discouraged, isn't it? It's easy. I find myself, you know, struggling. Oh, you know, the latest news. Um, I got to stay away from the, the news articles um, because you read them and it just causes you to be deflated, to lose heart. As we turn our attention to Elijah and to Elijah's day. It turns out that he is in very discouraging, deflating, spiritually dark time. This is in the northern kingdom. Uh, it's not merely just a, a period of, of significant decline, but, but they're hitting bottom, okay, in, in terms of their spiritual condition as a nation. And Elijah uh, specifically is extremely discouraged by these developments of full-blown idolatry, this kind of antichrist spirit that resides in the, uh, uh, the, the court of Ahab and Jezebel. There is a uh, renewed hostility to the worship of God in the northern kingdom. And what we will see this morning is that Elijah is called by God to Mount Horeb, which you need to understand is just another name for Mount Sinai. And there Elijah meets with God. He presents his complaint before the Lord, his complaint of what he's seeing in the society around him. And what we will see is that God reminds Elijah and us that things are not quite as dark as they may see. Okay, they're not quite as dark. They're dark. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Uh, but not quite as dark as they may seem. Would you stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired word? And so I'm reading from um, 1 Kings 19, 9 through 18. Then he, that's Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. 
and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your, in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Would you bow your heads? Our great God, may your mercy come to us that we may live. For your word is our delight. And let those who fear you turn to the teachers of your word that they may know your testimonies. May our hearts be blameless in applying your word, especially the command to repent and to have faith in Jesus Christ, that we might not be put to shame at the glorious coming of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. So the last we saw Elijah, um, he was near death. He, he was... He was discouraged. Uh, he was in the Negev uh, wilderness, and, and he had just asked the Lord to uh, take his life. But rather than taking his life, the Lord sent his angel, specifically the angel of the Lord, who fed him, gave him drink, gave him time and space for rest, preparing him for this longer journey, this journey that would be somewhere between 200 and 250 miles further to the south, in the Sinai um, Peninsula, modern-day um, Egypt. And there he's going to this mount, here referred to as Mount Horeb, just a, another name for Mount Sinai. Okay? So he's heading to Mount Sinai. Um, this is, and what, first of all, what we're not meant to see here is, this is Elijah, he's just, uh, you know, he's kind of having a pity, you know, a little prophet pity party. Okay, and he's just wanting to just get a, far away from Jezebel as possible and just kind of uh, 
complain to God. And what better place to complain? I'm going to go up on Mount Sinai and just complain. That, that's not what we are meant to see here. Okay? The language that we have seen here has been somewhat specific, and, and the Spirit of the Lord is doing something to help us to understand um, what's taking place. First, in verse 8, which I didn't read, um, we just listen to this language where he, Elijah, arose, he's in the Negev, he ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food. And then here's the language, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, and specifically we're told this is the Mount of God. Now that language is designed to trigger within us that 40 days, 40 nights. Well, that's like wilderness language, right? That's the children of Israel. They went through the wilderness 40 years. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days um, and and where he fasts as the Lord uh, meets with him, ultimately uh, supplying Moses with the Ten Commandments. What we're meant to understand is that now Elijah is, he's acting in a very official capacity. He is being categorized as a Moses-type figure. He is, you could call it a new Moses, a second Moses. That's often what um, biblical uh, uh, teachers will refer to this as. This is second Moses language. And, and many of these critical leaders in Israel's history, they're given these, these details where the Spirit of the Lord is conforming their lives or providentially their history so that it, is, uh, it coincides with the life and ministry of Moses. This is a new Moses. And the critical aspect about the second Moses in in Elijah's case is he is acting as a covenant mediator. So he is acting in a very official capacity. And as a prophet, he is going then to Mount Sinai. This is, and, and early we saw that the angel says, you've got to eat this because the journey before you is too great. As if I'm sending you. This isn't just Elijah just saying, oh, I want to go to Mount Sinai. But this is, this is the Lord sending him to Sinai. And that location also, of course, connects Elijah to Moses. And this is very intentional. He is, uh, he is acting in the office of a great prophet as a covenant mediator in the, uh, the shoes of Moses and the likeness of Moses. He's appearing before Yahweh. And something about these prophets is that they are uniquely granted a privilege. We see this with Isaiah. We see this with Ezekiel. Um, They are granted this privilege to enter into this kind of glorious presence of God, similar to the high priest, when they would enter into the most holy place, the holy of holies, and and they would engage the glory of God. And they could only do this once a year. Well, these prophets, like Moses on Mount Sinai, they are allowed to enter into the glorious presence of God. Sometimes it's referred to as the glory cloud. Ezekiel describes this glory cloud. Uh, cloud where God is seated on this mobile throne, and you have the cherubim and the seraphim that fill the glory of the cloud, and, and it just radiates power. It radiates light. Usually it's invisible to human eyes, but you have these rare occasions where the prophets are granted this mighty privilege 
to enter into the very, I mean, the, the, the literal throne room of God, this kind of mobile throne room that appears at different times and places in the Old Testament. This is all in response to the revolution against God, led by Queen Jezebel and King Ahab. The prophet's been kicked out of the earthly throne room of Ahab. He's been forced to flee the country for his life. The king and queen, filled with an antichrist spirit, have rejected and rebelled against Yahweh, even after he has graciously entered into a covenant renewal relationship with them. And more than this, they have viciously attacked God's prophet. And as much totalitarian power uh, was in the hands of Ahab and Jezebel to be used in the service of dark, demonic powers... the power um, uh, to actually have control over their nation ultimately did not reside in the throne room of Ahab, okay? And what we are meant to understand, so this is all in response to the societal collapse that's taken place in his country. And God says, okay, Elijah, I'm inviting you to come to the, to the heavenly palace, <laughs> to the suzerain king, the great king who oversees all the other kings. And in response to the societal collapse, now Elijah is in this official capacity of a prophet of the Lord. He's in the glorious presence of God. The way Elijah begins to shape and change history, you see, this is the control center. Ahab and Jezebel, they think they're in control. They think with all the powers of the state and the machinery that they have the power to affect this idolatrous nation in their own image. And it's a disaster. It is beastly, especially for the true believers of Yahweh. But what we're seeing, showing here is that it's not really the, the, where the history is being shaped and where it's being controlled. It's really at Mount Sinai. And this is where the man of God then is going. This is where history truly is shaped. And the way Elijah begins to shape and change history is through his prayers presented twice to the Lord. We find his petition first in verse 10. It's like, you know, this, and and think, this is more like an official. He's going into the throne room. He is like this official prosecutor, um, you know, of the covenant. And first he's in this cave and the Lord says, okay, what is your opening statement? That's the way we should see this. This is a very kind of official um, uh, uh, business taking place here. And so he just presents his declaration. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Well, that's true. For the people of Israel, and here we see his covenant role. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. See, there it is, right at the top. This is what this is about. This is about the covenant that has been made between the great king, Yahweh, and the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are defying the covenant terms, the treaty that has been made that was meant for peace and for blessing. Well, they have trashed it, and that's what um, Elijah is presenting. They have thrown down your altars. They have killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. They seek my life to take it away. Now, at this point, there are um, a lot of scholars who say, well, 
Elijah, you can still see the kind of discouragement in his voice here. You know, he's exaggerating the truth that, that he's the only one left, you know, woe is me kind of thing. But I think it's probably better to see this as there's a lot of truth in what he's saying. In general, what he's saying is correct. He is the only prophet who's actively working. He's the only one who's speaking out. All the other prophets, and we know there are at least 100 that are being hidden by Obadiah, um, well, they are, they're, they're relegated to a cave. They're hiding. They're, they're fearing for their lives. They, their ministry has been completely shut down. And so in terms of this active prophetic ministry, Elijah truly is the last one, and they are trying to kill him. He's not exaggerating one bit on that. Well, then that leads to, okay, so opening statements. And then he says, all right, um, uh, you are free to actually now come into the throne room. And so the Lord invites him to, to uh, uh, exit the cave. And then we see this, this glorious presence where you have these elemental effects. First, this wind that shows up and it breaks the rocks. It's like this, this F5 tornado. And you know when, it, when that, that tornado warning goes off? Well, you're looking for shelter, right? You're going to the safest part of your house or, or to your basement if you have a basement or something. Um, and, and you're like, okay, we're... we're and and it, it may not even... It's just a warning. I mean, it's, you know, something's been spotted miles and miles away, perhaps. Um, but that you take shelter. Well, this wind just blasts through this tornado. And then this is followed by the mountain shakes. I mean, these, these mountains are like rock. They're granite, okay? These are not soft little hills, and it shakes by this earthquake, followed by the lightning, you know, that suddenly there's this cloud above, and the lightning comes, and this furious business. All these elemental effects connected uh, to Yahweh. But then we're told, though, the presence of God was not in those elements. It was in this voice, this quiet whisper of a voice, and, and we're going to come to this. But in general, what this is, is the glory of God, his holiness, his magnificence, his majesty is showing up. That's what we're meant to understand. And now Elijah is in this glory, and immediately what we see, we're told, he, he cloaks his face. Why? Because of the glory. Okay, that's why he's, he's cloaking his face. He's got to cover his eyes. No man shall see the Lord and live. He's got to cover his face. And now he's presented, why are you here? That's, a, that's a, just another official way of saying, uh, what, what is your legal complaint? And Elijah runs through the same prayer, the same complaint. The result of this is as we, we will see this going on. But here's what we need to, right away, this is what, how do you respond when your society is falling to pieces? Our initial thing is to immediately rush out, whether it's in political action or protesting or, or signing petitions or calling our, our legislature, legislators or whatever. And what this is reminding us is that's not unimportant. Okay, that's not unimportant. But before we do that, that's not really where history is going to be shaped. That's not where you go to really have an impact. Where we need to go is into the throne room of God. 
And part of this is, and immediately, we, we're individuals. We're, we, oh, man, we're individual Americans. So what we're thinking is, oh, man, I got to get on my knees. <laughs> I got to pray. And that's good, and that's true. But let me suggest that a better application is for the church to gather. It's when the church gathers in worship. You know um, that we, Hebrews tells us that what happens when the church gathers and, and that that when we are formally led into worship, that we enter into the spiritual places where this, the, the true worship service is already going on and we are lifted up into it. And it's when we gather for worship that we are like Elijah in that throne room, filled with the Spirit of God. And again, the only way we can do this safely is because of what Jesus, right, has done for us. Otherwise, we would be incinerated. I suppose then, is there an application for masks, right? (laughs) Protect us from the glory. What we are doing right now, what we are doing on a week-by-week basis, this is, wh- this is the root of the issue. This is where our, the church's response begins. This is, this is uh, before the society around us will change. You see, that's downstream. You've got to get to the root before you can affect the fruit that you want. You can try to change the fruit, but if it's not connected to the root, it's just going to die. It's going to wither. and It's, it's not going to last. What we are doing right now is the first thing. And it's the most important thing. All right, I'm getting way ahead of myself. All right. This leads us back to verses 12 and 13, where we're given this strange description of what happens when God shows up in his glory. And what we see is that God is most present in his word. So I've talked about the wind, the F5 tornado wind, the, um, the earthquake, the fire that's coming. I mean, you can imagine how that would just make you tremble. And yet what we're specifically told is that the presence of God is not in those grand um, natural demonstration, demonstrations of power. But the real power where the presence of the Lord is found, it's in what's described here. It's this sound, this, this whisper, this low whisper. That, sound, that word sound can also be translated and often is just its call. It can be translated as a voice. And I think it would be better if it were this, he, what he heard was a voice, this low whisper. Well, what is this voice? This is the word of God. And what we're meant to understand is this is where the presence of God is most to be found, even, and even in comparison with the mightiest elements of nature. What we have to understand is that the word of God is where the presence of the Lord is. And that the word of God has more power than a tornado, than an earthquake, than, you know, the, the, a storm just full of lightnings and lightning strikes. Where the power is, where the presence of God connect, is connected, it is with his word. Isaiah 55, with respect to the word of God, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. With grace and confidence, we need to proclaim God's word to the nations. 
the word of God in the hands of the spirit of God has unique power to do the things that we really need to be done to change hearts, to change minds, to bring unity where there is currently great uh, division. We need to be fed and renewed by the word on a daily basis and having been fed on it, you see. So part of why worship is so critical, it's not only that we are appealing directly to God, but what, partly why worship is so powerful is because it changes us. It renews our mind. It renews our spirit so that as we go forth, we go forth in the power and in the witness. We have the, the witness of Elijah. That's what the world needs. That's what the world needs. God listens to Elijah's prayer and answers in two directions. First, God responds with judgment. This is uh, verses 15 through 17. The Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be the king over Syria. So the effect of, of his covenant lawsuit to the Lord is there's going to be a couple regime changes. <laughs> it is the Lord who raises kings up, and it is the Lord who brings them down. And so what Elijah is going to do is he's going to anoint this Hazael. He's a Syrian. He's a Gentile, and he's going to be the next king of Syria. And the Lord is specifically raising up this man to be a thorn, to be a judgment upon the northern kingdom. They've turned their backs on the Lord. Now he's going to be like this scourge, this sword that's, that's repeatedly attacking the northern kingdom and doing so quite effectively. The second person he is called to anoint is Jehu. We're going to come back to these, these characters. But Jehu, well, this is God's sword to specifically bring judgment on the household of Ahab. It will be awful when it comes. It'll be awful for the queen when this judgment arrives. And so this is a judgment that's going to be targeted on the administration of the northern kingdom. And then he's going to uh, anoint Elisha to be the prophet, whose word will be like a sword in its power and in its effect within the northern kingdom but he will then continue the true ministry of God, giving leadership to the people of God so that the people of God continue to be provided for in the days to come. So God is not leaving his people without uh, leadership, without spiritual support and blessing. And then that leads us to this response of grace, the very last verse. And this very last verse is important. Based on the historical developments, the seeming victory of Queen Jezebel, the silencing of the prophets, it was understandable for Elijah to conclude that he was the last true prophet of God. Circumstances looked apocalyptic for the people of God within the northern kingdom, and there just seemed to be no light at the end of this tunnel, no, no end in sight. But in verse 18, we read this. The Lord says to Elijah, and this encourages uh, the prophet, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
This is the Lord saying, my purposes will stand. It doesn't matter how hostile, how full of hatred um, and, and, and opposition the, the queen and king present to the true people of God. The Lord has decreed that he will protect, that he will save a remnant, that he will... Now, 7,000 light of the larger population probably is not a huge number. We should probably see it not as exactly 7,000. Probably this is a nice round figure, all right? This is referring to this, this remnant that God is going to maintain. And when we come to the New Testament, this was a great encouragement to the apostle Paul. So I'm going to just briefly turn to Romans chapter 11. And in Romans chapter 11, uh, the the Apostle Paul um, refers to this this very text, verse 18. And he's speaking in the, the, the context of this question. How do we explain in the New Testament period that the majority of Israel has rejected the Savior? They've rejected uh, Jesus. And so it's in this context that, that Paul speaks. And, and, and essentially what Paul's going to say is there are great similarities between Israel of his day and Israel of Elijah's day. And so beginning in verse 2, Paul writes, God has not rejected his people. He's speaking of, of Israel. Whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, now we're coming, this is Paul's editorial comment. This is his New Testament commentary on 1 Kings 19 verse 18. So too, At the present time, there is a remnant, and and this is critical, chosen by grace. For it is by grace, verse 6, for if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So Paul's adding something to what uh, we learn in 1 Kings. And what he's saying is is that that 7,000 They were there by the sheer, free, sovereign determination of God. God did this, not because these 7,000 were, you know, that they somehow worked it. It wasn't on the basis of works. It wasn't on the principle of earning it or meriting it. It was because God so willed it. And Jesus says, I will build my what? My church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Lord will preserve his, um, his church, his remnant. And sometimes that group of people is a minority within the larger um, culture, within the larger society. And again, well, one, this is a demonstration of God's power and of his grace, it's a sign that he really is the one who is sovereign, and we should not presume upon this grace. But note how the 7,000 is described back in 1 Kings. All the knees, so who are these 7,000? All the knees that have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. What is he saying? 
He's saying at the heart of what these 7,000 are about, it's about their worship. He doesn't say, well, these were the ones who were out protesting. These were the ones who got up, you know, organized the vote. <laughs> you know, these are the ones who, you know, uh, uh, led the, the reform in education. Those are all great things, but that's not how they're described here. They're described on the basis of their worship. And this goes in two directions. Number one, they renounced the idols. Okay, this isn't, it's not just enough to show up on Sunday. They renounced the idols of their age. In the case of these prophets, it was the Baal idol. But in today, you know, we, we need to understand there are American gods, American idols, um, and we need to renounce them. Part of the problem in our society is not the society. <laughs> it's a compromised church. And so this is God saying, I need your attention. If there are idols in your hearts, what do you do? You identify them. You renounce them. You repent of them. And you give your whole heart to the worship of Yahweh, to the worship of the triune God. That's a good place to end. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you that you have not left us without a word. You have not left us without a means to uh, engage the surrounding uh, society and the world. And we do pray, Lord, if there are idols in, in our hearts and our minds and lives, Lord, by your spirit, convict us, open up our eyes to them. And Lord, may they be uprooted 100%. May they be completely uh, destroyed within our own hearts and lives. And so, Lord, receive our worship. And this worship we offer is, is always uh, in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we might be a witness like Elijah was to his day. May we go forth in that same spirit and the same power of Elijah. Amen.